Discovery Houston, 20 seconds to LOS Tedris. Contest, nice to be in orbit. That was actual footage of the Discovery Space Shuttle communicating with NASA's Houston Command after breaking into orbit. Compared to what the space industry looks like today, a lot has changed since then. It's now easier than ever to get into orbit, and in this episode, we'll also break into orbit. In our previous episode, we took a broad-scale view of new space and what's happening with the help of our guest, Paul Gradel from NASA. If you missed it, we'd recommend you start with the episode one of this miniseries to get a better understanding of the current state of AM in the space industry. For this episode, we're going to be talking about the orbital stage of space exploration in way more detail. Welcome to Additive Snack, the podcast dedicated to enhancing your additive manufacturing journey. I am Fabian Alefeld, a member of the EOS award-winning consulting, engineering, and education team called Additive Minds. And I'm your host. In this episode of Additive Snack, with the help of Launcher's head of manufacturing and supply chain, Tim Berry, we're going to examine the intricacies of the technology that's being used to develop orbit vehicles and equipment in the new space industry, including, to a significant extent, additive manufacturing. Tim is an engineer by heart, working for California-based rocket and spacecraft company Launcher. They currently have two main products, Launcher Lite, which is the world's most economical small launch vehicle, and Orbiter, which is the third state of Launcher Lite, but also flies on SpaceX rideshare as an orbital transfer vehicle, or OTV. Orbiter can accomplish a wide array of missions, from placing satellites in their exact orbit to hosting payloads by providing all required resources to stay in orbit, such as power, telemetry, communications, and more. Launcher has a total of four missions manifested for 2023, with paying customers already booked on each. Let's listen into what Tim has to say. Tim, thank you so much for being on Out of Snack with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So, Tim, I'd actually like to start by finding a bit more about you and about how you got into space and your personal journey throughout your space career. I think that's super interesting. And uh, yeah, would like to start even at the very beginning, which is what inspired you and interested you to get into space? Sure, absolutely. So starting from uh, the day, uh, you know, when I first started uh, going to school and, and learning more about, about science and, and the planets and uh, the solar system and space and things like that, um, it was kind of love at first sight for me. You know, I, I fell in love with um, the possibilities of um, the limitless possibilities in space and, and kind of the spirit of, of human exploration that's, that's led us to go deeper and, and deeper into space um, and all the uh, pretty cool hardware that, that is involved with accessing space and staying in space and things like that. Um, so I kind of had the space bug uh, from a young age and, mm -hmm. and going through a lot of um, like science fairs or anything like that. All my projects were usually uh, space-based. So, um, you know, experiments for uh, growing plants or, or diagrams of, of uh, constellations or things like that. Um, cool. So I've always, you know, throughout my whole life, I've uh, really uh, had a strong um, love for space. Um, and uh, when I started, you know, early on in my career, I was uh, working initially in um, uh, construction and management, so kind of a strange transition to space. And then 
Uh, I also worked for an automation company that did, um, we worked on a lot of uh, automated production systems, Cougar robots, um, candy machines, things like that. Um, and we did some work for some local aerospace companies. Uh, and that was where I really got the first like exposure to actual like hands-on visually seeing uh, hardware that's used for space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, kind of kicked my desire to be in the industry into overdrive. Um, and so I applied to SpaceX, um, ended up getting a job there. And uh, I had several roles in my time there. So um, when I started, I was leading the upper stage production team. So uh, building the second stage of, of Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. And then after that, I transitioned over to the uh, Dragon integration team. So I, I led the team that uh, built the crew and cargo capsules uh, that carry astronauts and cargo uh, to the International Space Station. Uh, and then finally, I uh, ended my tenure there as the uh, head of additive manufacturing. So uh, it was really great for me because not only did I get to work with space hardware and, and you know get to experience uh, the space economy, uh, but also I got to work on kind of the three tenets of modern of the modern space industry which is rockets spacecraft and additive manufacturing or 3d printing so um that was my kind of career path uh, that i took before spacex and after i got to spacex super interesting from from science fair through advanced manufacturing into spacex a picture perfect career for any aspiring rocket scientist so you mentioned you know you you've been at space you were and spent a lot of time at spacex What was it like to be in that fast and agile and innovative environment compared to some of the other organizations that you had worked before at? Yeah. So the scale obviously was much larger with SpaceX than the previous companies I had worked at. So, you know, that was my first exposure to like working for a large company. But in terms of like SpaceX's culture against the overall, uh, you know, like legacy aerospace industry or anything, speed is what the outside world sees, right? Like a lot of doing things very quickly, ramping up uh, the launch cadence, uh, building second stages faster than, than I think, you know, anyone else has, uh, in, especially in that weight class. Um, so there's the speed and, and agility, but there's also, um, you know, a lot of unbridled innovation in SpaceX as well. I would say one of the key differentiators uh, for SpaceX is, um, you know, it's it's a meritocracy and um, it's all based on, on what you put in and, and what you can give to the company. Um, and everyone, you know, Elon likes to say that everyone is, is uh, chief engineer, right? So everyone can make suggestions. Everyone feels empowered uh, to change things. And I really feel like the iteration pace that SpaceX has kind of made the norm nowadays uh, seem completely unfeasible to people in the uh, past, or especially in the legacy aerospace industry, where uh, you'd have like a new piece of hardware, and that new piece of hardware would take maybe a year to, to go through the like design release phase. You know, it may, might take another year to get some kind of change or something approved. Eventually, it gets into manufacturing, and then later there's more committees and more changes and things like that. And you know, five to ten years down the road, you have a, a product, right? Well, at SpaceX, it's completely different. I mean, you can make suggestions, especially in development programs. Obviously, the more established uh, programs are, um, you know, have, have uh, more uh, documentation and controls and things. But in development programs, um, you know, it's you could want something changed. You go and talk to the engineers. You go and talk to the quality representatives. And within like two days, um, you have something changed. And it's it's already, you know, making its way onto the, the test stand or, or into testing. So I think... Uh, SpaceX is really un, unhindered engineers and technicians' creativity, and and uh, with and also empowered them to have uh, a say in the design. 
Um, and also, obviously, you know, set very aggressive goals, which ultimately increased the, the pace of iteration and innovation as well. Yeah, for sure. SpaceX has has opened up the market of the, the private space industry and has also created smart minds such as yourself to then venture out of SpaceX and build up the the industry from 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 different angles. And and you moved over to Launcher in I believe 2021 and you're now the head of manufacturing and supply chain at Launcher. Tell us a bit more about that role and also what you brought from your previous work experience into uh, into your role and into the the organization of Launcher. Sure, that's a good question. So I started when, you know, back in January of uh, 2021, I was uh, looking for a new opportunity. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of looked out across the new space industry and I, I looked at a few different companies, um, you know, and ended up going through the interview process and, and um, you know, got offers from a couple of them. Uh, but really, Launcher is the one that ultimately sold me and the one that I wanted to go to. Um, you know, I think uh, our CEO and founder, Max Hout, um, his real focus and the company's focus is, was, is on high performance. Um, so, you know, taking a little bit more time to do things the correct way, not designing ourselves into a corner with like a low performance engine, just to try to get to market quickly. Um, and, uh, with our orbital transfer vehicle with orbiter really focusing on delivering the lowest cost and the highest capability possible. So I think, um, that's what really attracted me to launcher is, is this kind of, you know, laser focus on high performance and, 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 low cost, also uh, kind of a company culture of uh, insourcing, right? Like wanting to make most of the hardware ourselves be vertically integrated, both for design and manufacturing, uh, which has ultimately given us a lot more flexibility and control. Um, so all those things kind of made me fall in love uh, with Launcher. Um, so the role that I took on uh, here is leading the manufacturing and supply chain organizations. Um, so that effectively covers everything that we make and buy uh, here at Launcher. Um, so, uh, you know, the supply chain organization made up mostly of uh, sourcing, material planning, um, supplier quality, um, you know, different roles of, of that type. Uh, and then on the manufacturing side, we have everything from uh, like tooling fabrication, you know, welding, uh, tube manifold assembly, all the way through additive manufacturing, machining, uh, final integration, avionics build, all those things. Um, so the role also was very enticing to me because it encompassed all the things that I've worked on throughout my career, right? So additive manufacturing, rockets, and spacecraft. Um, and so Launcher uniquely had uh, kind of all those all those things. Um, and this role really has been great because I've been able to uh, be involved with all the amazing hardware that we make and also helping to develop a, a great supply base to support all of our manufacturing operations. Super interesting role. Sounds like you're you're truly living living the dream, or at least also your childhood's dream. And it's also, it's also interesting to me because you know you guys have already built what a lot of companies are striving for, right? Which is a vertically integrated uh, supply chain and manufacturing, which is bringing manufacturing back to localized facilities, especially back into the United States. And you guys now have the opportunity to to leverage all of that hard work that you guys have also worked on over the past years. And also when it comes to Launcher, like you just mentioned, the technology and the portfolio is, is quite unique, right? You got the, the Launcher Lite, you have your Orbiter. And I would like to dive a bit deeper into into those two two product lines. And let's start with uh, with the launcher light. Can you give us an overview of the rocket itself, the components, and uh, how it breaks down? Yes, absolutely. So launcher light is our uh, small launch vehicle. We're planning 
150 kilograms on top of uh, Orbiter, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, uh, to LEO. Um, it's uh, to capture uh, kind of the, the small and micro launcher uh, segment. Um, and really our focus with, with this, this launch vehicle has been on uh, cost redu- high performance and cost reduction, right? Which kind of go hand in hand, especially when you're uh, building rockets. So a few things that, that um, really make Launcher Lite great um, are uh, the uh, manufacturing methods. So because we uh, have, are able, our, our pumps are very high performance on the rocket engine, uh, we're able to use uh, much lighter uh, tanks for the rockets. So that reduces the overall mass uh, that we have to carry. Uh, additionally, because our engine is so high performance, um, we are uh, we don't have to carry as much propellant in the rocket. So basically, we carry less fuel and we carry more payload, mm-hmm. right? So you know the performance of the engine, the low cost materials and manufacturing methods that we use to actually build uh, the rocket itself. Um, we're confident we'll deliver, you know, one of, if not the most economical small launch vehicles um, in the market today. So overall, the rocket is a three-stage rocket. Um, so there's a traditional first stage and a second stage. So the first stage launches first, um, and, you know, that, that takes us up into the upper atmosphere. They sep- the stages separate. Second stage continues on its mission. And then our first rocket will be expendable, uh, so the stage would just fall safely into the ocean, um, you know, and then... But on this rocket, apart from uh, a lot of other rockets, there's a third stage as well. And that third stage is actually Orbiter. Um, And so originally we were planning just to build a three-stage rocket and launch it. I think uh, 2027 was was our original um, target goal, so 10 years from founding. Um, And we realized, our our founder realized that we could actually provide a service and and fill a market segment a lot sooner if we kind of plucked the third stage off and flew it as a transfer vehicle, hosted payload platform, uh, and an orbital debris cleanup uh, platform as well uh, on SpaceX rideshare. So currently we fly Orbiter, which is the third stage, uh, at, on its own on SpaceX rideshare. It carries, um, you know, we can talk about the functions in a second, uh, but eventually that's planned to be the actual third stage of uh, of the light small launch vehicle. Uh, and then the light vehicle uses a single uh, E2 liquid rocket engine on the first stage, uh, which uh, is the highest performance kerosene engine ever manufactured in the U.S., uh, accompanied by uh, the, its turbo pump, which is the highest efficiency kerosene turbo pump ever manufactured in the U.S. as well. So uh, a lot of people uh, don't necessarily link the how high performance translates into low cost, but effectively, the higher performance your engine is, the lighter your rocket tanks are, and the more payload you carry and the less fuel that you carry. Um, so that's why we think light, light will be uh, especially competitive. And a very big part of the ability to create these competitive technologies is the role of additive manufacturing, if I'm not mistaken, right? So additive manufacturing has played, I think, a very big role in your career and has played a very big role uh, in your positions as SpaceX, and it plays a very big role in your current position at, at Launcher. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uses of additive manufacturing for your technologies? Absolutely. So the rocket, when it launches, should really have a big brought to you by additive manufacturing uh, sticker on the side of it, because, um, you know, the vast majority of components and subcomponents that we manufacture uh, are made using uh, powder bed fusion uh, printing, um, uh, particularly on our uh, EOS M300. Uh, But uh, yeah, so the uh, additive parts make up probably 80% of our of our uh, bomb of both products. Um, you know, some things that stand out are we make a lot of uh, turbo machinery components uh, using uh, uh, powder bed fusion additive manufacturing. 
Uh, we make our, we print our entire uh, combustion chamber on an AMCM M4K printer. Um, so we were the first company to do a fully monolithic meter tall uh, combustion chamber print. Uh, and that was back in 2019. I believe it was one of the very first prints off the uh, M4K uh, printer. Um, and uh, since then, a, a lot of people or a lot of companies have followed suit, right? They're, they're using like large printed copper combustion chambers uh, because you get the benefit of density of complexity with powder bed fusion. So combustion chambers usually have a lot of intricate uh, cooling channels on the inside, uh, variation of ports and sensor ports and things like that. Um, and traditionally, these things were made with like a number of castings and a brazed together copper liner and brazing incurs a ton of different defects. And so, um, you know, powder bed fusion has been a game changer of being able to print these very tall copper parts um, for the chamber. Uh, aside from the chamber, um, we also, uh, a lot of our uh, valve housings, um, spring casings, a lot of uh, knickknacks and subcomponents are, are printed. Um, and then uh, what stands out as another great application is our um, propellant tanks for Orbiter. So the propellant tanks for Orbiter are uh, printed using powder bed fusion out of titanium 6.4. Uh, and they, there's eight tanks and they make up basically the primary structure of Orbiter, but also uh, they are a secondary mounting structure because they have little nubs that we mount uh, brackets and things like that too. Uh, and they're a propellant tank. So they actually serve three purposes, which is something we'd never be able to do without uh, additive manufacturing. Um, and most people who have looked for space qualified tanks uh, basically usually spend about a year and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of NRE to develop those tanks. So the ability to just print, you know, 10 different configurations, 10 different times, with no tooling changes, no high NRE costs or anything has really been beneficial, especially for that product. Yeah. And you touch on a really good point that, you know, yes, in the space industry, you you've reinvented the way that we innovate and reinvented the way that we bring products to market through, you know, concepts, probably also like design thinking and uh, moving away from waterfall product development models, but also additive manufacturing itself allows you to very quickly iterate new concepts and new new ideas and and test those out in, in, in real time. And as you mentioned, Orbiter, I think is the perfect example, you know, you guys being founded in 2017, you now have your first successful separation in space. And that is a very, very awesome achievement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that mission and the intricacies and and challenges, but also successes that you've had? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, from the company was founded in 2017 and our primary product that we were working on initially was the engine, right? So we kind of started at the base and, and we were going to work our way up into designing the rocket as well. Um, and then the the change of making Orbiter a flying orbiter as the third stage for the rocket happened in the June uh, 2020 timeframe when we moved into this new facility. Mm -hmm. um, so realistically, we went from like clean sheet, absolutely like no designs, nothing to, uh, you know, separating successfully from Falcon 9 uh, in about 18 months. Um, and I think uh, one of the key things there is uh, additive manufacturing, right? If we were not able to use powder bed fusion to print a multitude of different parts and iterate quickly and get to this point, it probably would have taken us 3x as long uh, to be able to, to get to this point. It would have cost us a lot more money as well. Um, the journey was awesome. Uh, you know, it's uh, anytime you make something new, there's, there's always a lot of um, challenges and, and late nights and things that come up. Um, I think the team rose to the occasion very well. Um, it was 
you know, we, we were able to meet all of our uh, miles, uh, shipping milestones and dates and things like that. Uh, we had a smooth uh, integration campaign uh, down in the Cape as well, which is a testament just to the team's professionalism and their ability to adapt. Um, so it was definitely a, a, an interesting and a fun ride kind of, uh, you know, leaving SpaceX and coming to uh, somewhere that's definitely a lot newer, where there's a lot more things that we had to figure out, uh, but also a lot more, uh, even more opportunity to affect change uh, than I'd already experienced earlier in my career. Um, so uh, it, to sum it all up, it was a lot of fun to, to get to this point. It was a lot of fun, a lot of heartaches and challenges and things like that, but I'm very proud of the, the build that the team accomplished, and we look forward to uh, our future missions coming up as well. Yeah, no, also congrats from my side. That's a super, super impressive to bring that vehicle up into space within 18 months i mean uh just shows the capabilities of of you and and your team and the uh, the whole launcher group and you know orbiter is more than just just a third stage right you guys have have big plans what are those plans oh okay so how much time do you have uh <laughs> so we currently orbiter started out as an as what's called an orbital transfer vehicle or space tug so you probably see this word a lot in the market today. There's a lot of people that are making space tugs or transfer vehicles or anything. Even though the market might seem big, there's actually no one that's really demonstrated a significant transfer, um, you know, especially with like a high delta fee or propulsive capability. Um, so we, we still think there's a huge market segment for, for transfer vehicles. You know, there's, there's just not enough uh, rockets and, and launch capacity to get all the payloads that are coming out into space. So there's, you know, there's going to be plenty of, of capacity and things like that for transfer missions. Now, what makes Orbiter unique is that it actually can serve multiple purposes, especially even on the same mission. So on the same mission, we can do a orbital transfer. So basically what that means is, we fly up with SpaceX rideshare on Falcon 9 with, you know, other payloads that are there and other customers. They deploy us into sun-synchronous orbit, so they kind of dump everybody off in the same spot. And then basically, if you have a satellite that you want to get to a specific orbit, but you can't, you know, it's not sun-synchronous orbit and you don't have enough propellant to reach it yourself, then basically you put your, your payload on top of Orbiter and we take you to whatever orbit you want to go to and then we deploy now, on the same mission, because Orbiter carries so much propellant, we carry, you know, I think the highest or one of the highest uh, amount of propellant in the industry, we can do a multitude of missions on the same launch. So we can go do uh, orbital transfer mission, uh, and then we can host uh, payloads on it as well, which is the, the second um, functionality of Orbiter is to host payloads. So basically, um, if you want to build a satellite, but you know you just want to build the camera or you just want to build the rangefinder or whatever it is, antenna, but you don't want to build all the power, telemetry, propulsion, communications, everything it takes to basically keep your, your payload on orbit functioning, um, then basically your thing and our thing together become a satellite. So you put yours on top, your payload on top of Orbiter, and we give you all the things that you need to exist in space. So that's the hosted payload config. So we can do a transfer mission and then also a hosted payload mission on the same mission. Um, and that's why we typically will book uh, numerous customers on our, on our uh, missions. So, you know, I think our first mission had about eight customers on it. Um, and, you know, future missions have, have multiple customers as well. Um, the third use case for Orbiter is uh, that we just got funding from the U.S. government uh, to study is using Orbiter as a uh, orbital debris cleanup. Uh, vehicle. So basically going up and grabbing pieces of space junk um, and either, uh, you know, pulling them down in the atmosphere, servicing them, putting them into a graveyard orbit, things like that. Um, so th those are only the applications that we've discovered so far. Uh, you know, we think there's other opportunities, especially with 
um, in-space manufacturing becoming so prevalent, um, and also uh, on-orbit servicing of older satellites to extend their lifetime. Um, so we think there's you know many more applications that we'll uncover for Orbiter, but those are the three uh, that we found so far. Incredible, especially the the space debris cleanup uh, concept sounds sounds super interesting. I've actually space never... junk. Space junk, yeah. I've never heard of a graveyard orbit, so I will definitely add that to my vocabulary. Yeah, basically, there's there's some satellites uh, where they're really big, and I don't think they can re-enter. So they, uh, you know, they'll position them into an orbit where they basically just stay there uh, forever. Um, but you know, I think as as uh, platforms like Orbiter mature uh, and and kind of rise to meet the occasion, I think uh, graveyard orbits hopefully become less uh, less needed, less prevalent uh, as we actually have the capability to go out there and, and do cleanup. Yeah, super incredible innovation. And again, within 18 months, that is that is just incredible. So we talked about Launcher with the with the Launcher Alliance and the Orbiter. And as we mentioned earlier, you've had uh, quite the exposure in the space industry when it comes to to various organizations. And you've been in additive manufacturing for, for, for quite some time now. So what role does additive manufacturing play today in the space industry and what other applications besides the ones that you uh, you just mentioned so engines and, and turbo pumps and uh, and certain fuel tanks are being printed today or do you see being printed in the future yeah so i think in terms of the role that it plays i think it's absolutely vital to aerospace companies i think if you're trying to create a new product uh, in the space and defense sector um, if you're not using printing you're falling behind in in my opinion so um, you know, there's even a lot of aerospace components nowadays um, are even are invest are made using investment casting, and I think with the advent of large format uh, printers, um, especially ones you know with with powder bed fusion, oftentimes you can get around 30 percent uh, better properties from from a printed part than a cast part. Um, so I really think with large format printers, uh, effectively foundries are going to become uh, less prevalent or, or very rarely used uh, for aerospace hardware, only for things that are very large and not complex and, and don't really make a lot of sense to, to, to use powder bed fusion for. Um, other than that, I really see add additive as being the primary uh, fabrication method for uh, most aerospace hardware, uh, especially, you know, and, and that combined with, with uh, subtracted machining on the back end. Um, we are not, uh, uh, we, we don't have plans to, uh, you know, print the primary structure of the rocket or anything like that. Um, we do print the primary structure of uh, Orbiter, which is the, the propellant tanks, like we discussed earlier. Um, but yeah, I, in terms of the overall industry, I mean, I think we've, even though additive is very prevalent, I think we've barely scratched the surface of the things that we can do with additive manufacturing, um, especially as it relates uh, to powder bed fusion for things like um uh, consolidation and combination of parts, right? So taking a lot of different parts and combining them together, I, I think we've only scratched the surface of the possibilities there. Uh, and also um, uh, using things like uh, seed part printing, uh, which is one of our, our techniques, but effectively printing uh, part onto another part. So taking like a casting and printing onto that or printing a part in one material, moving it to the, another printer and then printing another part on top of it, which will eliminate, you know, weld joints and things like that. So I think additive ultimately provides the ability of a few different advantages. And uh, some of those are things like uh, no expensive tooling changes uh, when you want to change things, right? You can you can print a turbo pump part and then a, a satellite part and then a medical device and you can print anything uh, without any tooling changes in between. 
Um, and uh, you know, a, a great example of how rapidly you can iterate when you when you use Powder Bed Fusion or, or Alloy Manufacturing in general. Um, you know, we would go from starting a print to testing a thruster in the desert in like one week on our testing. So like start the print and then from the start of the print a week later, you're out testing, uh, you know, a small uh, rocket engine in the in, in, on a test stand. So that that is really um, kind of the distilled advantage uh, that I see there. So rapid iteration, better properties, reduction of costs and consolidation of parts. Um, and I think we've really only scratched the surface of what's possible uh, Yeah, like like many industries. And I, I do and I'm making a assumption here, but I would assume that if we look at space companies across all of their engineering departments, that the understanding and knowledge about additive manufacturing is probably the highest out of any other industry compared to automotive, medical, aviation. Uh, all the way into uh, into consumer electronics. Would you would you sign that statement? Yeah, you mean uh, are you saying that the the understanding of additive in the engineering populations is greater in aerospace than it is in other industries? Is that what you're saying? In space, I would say in space as a whole. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, you know the additive parts are are uh, often used for very highly demanding applications, particularly in space. So, you know, design, the design engineers and the analysts of today, uh, you know, have to be very well connected and, and fully understand additive since, you know, it's, it's, it's very different from casting or anything like that mm -hmm. or any traditional methods that they might get used to. And I think the, the, the proliferation of, of knowledge of additive out through the space industry among uh, in engineers, non-additive engineers, uh, I think is incredibly important because a lot of times for people that don't work in additive, do additive or understand the parts, Uh, the parts are are guilty until proven innocent, right? They think there must be something wrong with them because they're printed and they're very nebulous and they don't understand. So I think um, the space industry, generally, the engineers have a much better understanding of additive parts, particularly because they usually have to sign off that they're good or evaluate them or anything. Um, and I think like that needs to continue to proliferate so that we don't, uh, you know, there's so that we can kind of dispel the the mysticism that's around additive um, and really make people understand the the benefit of it and not, you know, look at additive parts suspiciously. So I think there's a lot of great knowledge out there. And I think we need to continue to, um, you know, uh, podcasts such as yours help to, to proliferate that knowledge out through the industry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, without engineers who are advocates for additive manufacturing, understand the technology and, and can design for it, we really have a slow adoption ahead of us. But uh, yeah, you know. As you said, right now it's guilty until proven innocent, but we have some great lawyers out there such as yourself who uh, are proving the, right. the innocence of, of additive manufactured parts. So right. to kind of wrap up this episode, let's get our crystal ball and look a bit into the future. 10 years from now, where do you think Launcher is and where do you think the space industry as a whole is going to be at? Yeah, starting with Launcher, you know, I think we're making regular, uh, like many, many regular trips uh, with Orbiter uh, every year. Likely there will be upgraded larger versions uh, in the future, just continuing to expand our, our portfolio of offering low-cost space access, whether that's through um, rockets or, or uh, different spacecraft that we manufacture, um, and ultimately scaling up to be a much larger company to, to meet the needs of our, our customers. Um, the overall space industry, uh, I think like if you look at some 
uh, uh, some projections uh, of like the amount of launch capacity that's needed, you see that there's just this massive deficit of what is available or even planned, right? Like if every company in the world that is making rockets today succeeds, there is still not enough launch capacity. Um, so I really think, uh, you know, some people see the space industry overall consolidating and, and just being a few players in the future. Um, I'm uh, much more uh, bullish on there being a lot of companies that are launching regularly and are able to effectively service the high demand of, of satellites that are needed uh, over the next 10 years. So I see the industry scaling and expanding. Uh, we are very optimistic. We have a very optimistic view of, of how much launch capacity is going to be needed. And you know, I'm sure there will be continued maturation of, of other hypersonic technologies and things like that as well. That is a, a perfect note to to end this episode. I love that you're 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 bullish on the industry. I think we are uh, bullish as well on what we see and have seen over the past just two three years alone. And we're super excited to have yeah companies such as yourself and people such as yourself uh, leading the industry and and driving the industry forward because ultimately it really benefits every individual and every one of us. So. Tim, thanks so much for, for being on Additive Snack. It was a pleasure to have you on the show and I hope to, uh, to see you soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I hope this episode has given you some great insights into the realities of the new space industry and how innovative companies like Launcher are using technologies like additive manufacturing to push the boundaries of what we thought possible. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Zach Cordero, a professor at the MIT who's working on research that might change not only the space industry, but the additive manufacturing industry as a whole. So don't forget to subscribe to Additive Snack on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Fabian Adelfeld, and you've been listening to Additive Snack by EOS, leaders in industrial additive manufacturing solutions. A big thank you for this episode goes out to Kristen War, Shannon Bauch, and Jenna Phillips, as well as the Brafton team. And of course, to Tim Barry and the Launcher team. <laughs>